The lesson this morning is taken from the first book, uh, first letter of John. So 1 John chapter 1 and the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you please be seated and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your word, your word of truth, you would sanctify us this morning. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you, knowing that you are the truth, that you would lead us into all truth in you today. And Holy Spirit, please, would you lead us and keep us together in the truth about the Father and the Son, so that we may have the eternal joy of fellowship with you and with each other. These things we ask. Holy God, for your glory. Amen. It is good to see you this morning. If you were here last week, then you had the chance to meet John Teasdale and to hear his first of what I hope will be many sermons in this place. If you haven't heard that, it's on the YouTube channel, and I really would encourage you to download it. It will warm your heart and encourage your soul. He began last week by asking the question, when difficulties or troubles come, what do you do? Well, you need to listen to last week's sermon to answer that question. But I want to ask a related question as we begin a journey in John's first letter this morning. And it's this. It's a question that Jesus put to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. Why did doubts rise in your minds? Luke 24, verse 38. Why did doubts rise in your minds? Or more literally, why did doubts rise in your hearts? When we doubt, uh, it's not normally just here or just here, it's both. It's something that troubles our minds and we feel the effect of doubts in our heart as well. Why do doubts rise in you? Do you ever find yourself wondering if Christianity can really be true? I don't mean the wrestling that many of us would testify to, certainly I would, uh, of spending time, in my case, years Wondering from the outside if the Christian faith was true and before taking that step of trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're with us and you've not yet taken that decision to follow Christ, I'm glad you're here. Listen in. Join us on the journey. And I hope that what God's word says to you today will help you enormously. And yet I'm framing the question particularly uh, to people who, like the two on the road to Emmaus, are already following Jesus, and yet doubts resurface in their minds and in their hearts. Why do these doubts come, Jesus says to us? What if you've 
believed. And one day it turns out to all have been made up. I had a cold flutter uh, like that this week. I've set myself the task of reading a gargantuan book of nearly 1,200 pages uh, on the history of Christianity, an exhaustive uh, history of Christianity. The author, uh, Dermaid McCulloch, is a rightly distinguished historian who's been knighted for his services to academia. He's also an Anglican clergyman like me, And I've benefited greatly from some of his other writings in the past. And yet, he was writing in his erudite introduction to the book of how he remembers with affection what it was like to have a clear Christian faith of his own, a a faith he has now left behind. He would now describe himself, and I quote, as a candid friend of Christianity rather than a personal Christian. Well, there may be a thousand other reasons, as different as each of us are to each other. But the question that Jesus poses to us stands, why do doubts rise in your minds and in your hearts? And how shall we answer those doubts? The French philosopher Pascal had a famous wager, which roughly went like this. Uh, We might as well believe in God, because if it turns out he's not real, we've lost nothing. But if he is real and we didn't believe in him, then at the judgment day, we'll lose everything. Well, I don't think that's the New Testament perspective. As we heard a couple of weeks ago, back in Paul's great chapter on the resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Faith is not a wager. Faith is a decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who died for our sins and who rose to reign in everlasting glory. And if that is not true, then those of you on YouTube might as well retune to a video about cats jumping amusingly from the sofa, as there are so many options like that. But I hope you don't. It's harder for you in church to walk out, slightly more embarrassing. But I hope you won't tune out either. You see, Jesus' question on the Emmaus Road was followed by his invitation to consider the evidence for faith, his own risen body. Look at me, he said. Listen to me. Touch me. And as they did that, those two found that their doubts were displaced by joy. Faith still had a way to go and to grow, but the trajectory was clear. And the same is true. For us, doubts can only truly be dealt with by an encounter with the true and living God himself, whether that's for the first time or whether it's in the renewal of our confidence in him. The God who comes to us, who speaks to us in Jesus Christ and invites us to discover the eternal joy of knowing him personally and of knowing him in the company, in the fellowship of the believing community. And now we're just about ready for John's first letter. You see, because John was writing to a congregation that was wrestling with doubt. In their case, it was because a group had risen up from within their congregation uh, with able preachers and it seems numerous followers who were preaching a different Jesus to the one that the apostles had preached. uh, A Jesus who wasn't really fully God in human form. And these uh, new people had uh, reckoned that their Jesus was a better one than the one the apostles preached. They reckoned their faith was superior and they had departed. 
So 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, uh, John says to this congregation of that group, they went out from us. And in the wake of their departure, the remaining congregation was disoriented. Is the message the apostles brought to us really true? Or is there something better? What is authentic Christian faith when there seem to be so many dissonant voices, even within the churches? So much division, so much proclamation of a version of Christianity which seems more appealing to the culture around us and to the instincts within us, how can we be sure that what we've been taught from the scriptures about this Jesus is really true? Those are the questions that were arising in the minds of that congregation and John writes this letter in response to them. His response to that swirling confusion is a reassurance that the biblical, apostolic, orthodox Christian message that they had believed, and that so many yet seem to doubt or deride, really is true. And he urged them, if you take your stand here, well then you will counter your personal doubts with well-grounded faith, but you will also defend against division by standing together on God's revealed truth. And more than that, you will discover the living and abiding presence of God himself within you and amongst you as you do so. John tells us at the end of the letter, again, why he wrote 1 John 5 verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus wrote, uh, John wrote his gospel to people who weren't sure whether they believed in Jesus to encourage them to put their faith in Jesus. John writes his letter to people who believe in Jesus, but who lack the assurance that it really is true when those doubts from the myriad angles come and assault us. I write these things to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. So I don't know what the causes are of the doubts that perhaps you wrestle with or the disorientation that you feel. We have a collective sense of that through the last year of the pandemic, of course. We know the reality of divisions in churches through the millennia. Well, this is God's word to those who believe that we may know and take our stand and do it together and do it knowing that God is with us. Well, so to 1 John itself, and if we could turn to the uh, slides uh, now, that would be helpful. Uh, And uh, I want to make five points from four verses. You might think that's making uh, too much, but there's so much that John packs in here uh, as uh, he, first of all, gives this response to those doubts, those disorientations, and the division that he finds in the congregation to which he writes. Five words to take us through. Uh, incarnation, witness, proclamation, fellowship, and joy. And as is often the case, I will be spending more time on the first one than the subsequent ones. Uh, And so do not fear when you look at your wristwatches. Number one, incarnation. That which was from the beginning appeared. And that's a good translation. That which neuter was from the beginning appeared. It would have been much easier and made an easier sermon to preach if John had written, he who was from the beginning appeared. Because then it would be really obvious that John was talking about Jesus. But John is talking about Jesus. 
And as we understand why he writes the way he does, we're going to discover an important truth. You see, God is from the beginning. The gospel begins with God appearing in the flesh in the man Jesus Christ. It clearly is who John is talking about. Look at the beginning of verse 2. The eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So what appeared? Eternal life. And it must be a who because he was with the Father and it is he who has now come and appeared to us. It is the Son who is with the Father and who has appeared. That's what Christmas is about. The Son of God becomes a man as he's born into the flesh of Mary's womb. John is echoing the start, the famous beginning of his own gospel. Do you remember how it begins? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And who is this Word? Well, not an it, but a he. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or again, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is the heart of Christianity. God has come to us in person that we might know him personally as we put our trust in the one who came in his Son, Jesus Christ. So uh, this is the one John is speaking about here. He's talking about God's son, Jesus. Uh, He was from the beginning. He is life. He has appeared to us. So knowing that, uh, therefore, why uh, does John uh, write using neuter pronouns quite deliberately when he's speaking about a person? Well, for this reason, he wants to be clear that we cannot separate God's word spoken from God's word incarnate. That's really important. When he says that which was from the beginning, he also means the word of life. That is the revealed words given to God's prophets and apostles. John's church divided because of people who wanted their own Jesus, one who was separate from and distinct to the apostolic Jesus, the one who the apostles preached and who bore witness to all the promises given to the prophets that were fulfilled in the Old Testament. And why is this important? Well, let me give you a reason from within the Anglican family. The Church of England is more likely than ever in its history over the next few years, to split into two. And it's going to, if it does split into two, do it for precisely this reason, that there are those who would separate the apostolic biblical Jesus from God's own Son who came in the flesh. And John writes, as he does, precisely because we can never and we must never divide Jesus from the Scriptures. Because that is dividing the word of God from the word of God or the word of life written from the word of life incarnate. And by using those neuter pronouns, John is saying to us, of course, our faith is in a person. God has come personally. We trust a person. But you know, our only access to that person is through the word written that has been entrusted to me and the other apostles and to the prophets who came before. The only Jesus who is real. The only Jesus who is life and brings life when we trust him is the authentic, apostolic, 
biblical Jesus. I've warned you many times, uh, do not listen to say to those who say, yes, of course, we must believe in Jesus. But Paul and John and Peter, they were men of their time. We pick some of what they said, of course, and we listen to that. But other parts, well, we've grown beyond that. We no longer agree with that. The modern insights of science or psychology mean we can no longer accept those things that they say. Once we do that, we have parted company not only from the word written, but from the word incarnate. These men were the ones entrusted by the word of life in person with the word of life written that would bear his message to the generations to come. And when we listen to them, we listen to him. When we negotiate with them and accept only some of what they say, we negotiate with Jesus and accept only some of what he says. And that is the pathway to death via division. And how do we know? Well, we know because of apostolic testimony, the language of witness. Listen to the language that John uses, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. The life appeared. We have seen it. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, he says. In other words, don't listen to those who preach a different Jesus, says John, because I heard the real Jesus. I saw him do his miracles. I was there when he taught the Sermon on the Mount and raised Lazarus to life and all the other miracles and teaching of Jesus' revelation. I can tell you that he is the word of God who has taken flesh full of grace and truth because I heard and saw and touched him. And it seems there's a a careful structure uh, to John's uh, description of his eyewitness testimony as an apostle. And I've put on the screen there uh, the way in which the the language of uh, his witness uh, is framed symmetrically. Uh, So first and last, he mentions that he heard. That's absolutely foundational to the next point he's about to make. It's only because he heard truly the word of God that he can proclaim truly the word of God. But four times uh, he mentions uh, that he saw. A picture, they say, is worth a thousand words. Uh, When the witness stands up in court and says, with the finger pointed at the accused, I saw him put that rock through the window or whatever it was. It's powerful. It's compelling. Uh, The evidence of the eyes and of hearing the stories of those who've been and seen is rightly compelling. That you can hear and see in our day on a television. And the center of John's witness, right there at the middle point of his, te- of his witness, is that he touched. See, the false teachers uh, in this uh, church that John was writing to uh, were, just like false teachers in every age, trying to have both Jesus and the cultural spirit of the age and wanting to find middle ground and to get rid of those things uh, which were divisive and off-putting for unbelievers uh, and caused uh, the church to get into trouble in the wider culture uh, when it stood firm on what God's word said. Well, in the first century, it wasn't the things that our culture finds offensive In Greek philosophy, the most scandalous idea of all was that a true God could take human flesh. To do that was an idea so dreadful, 
so unworthy of respect in a civilized society, so absolutely appalling that the temptation arose within the early church to find a way to say, here is Jesus, but, well, okay, we don't want to offend your philosophy and culture too much, so maybe we don't really need to have this incarnation business of the real God really becoming in flesh and blood a human being. Can you see the power in that culture of why John puts touch at the heart of his testimony? I touched him. Don't you give me any of this nonsense uh, about Jesus just being a man and the Christ spirit floated down and floated off, untainted uh, with the reality of fleshly life. No, God took flesh and it was the God who made you who became one of us, full of grace and truth. And I touched him. And he was real. He was not a ghost. He was not an apparition. And the incarnation was permanent so that there is now a man in heaven. God took flesh and never abandoned it. And the incarnation stands at the heart of what we believe. And John says, I heard him. I saw him. And you don't worry about those false teachers. I touched him. God really became one of us. That means we know he's for us, he's with us, and one day we will be with him in eternity. That's why John writes as he does. You see, because we haven't heard personally, we haven't seen ourselves, we can't touch. They weren't in the right place at the right time. But John was, by the design of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And that's why God gave us his written word so that we can have access to the grace and truth of Jesus through this written word of life today, 2,000 years later, and not miss out on anything of the word incarnate who is ours when we trust him. This is the witness of the apostles, the unique and authoritative witness of the apostles. Number three, proclamation. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, this we proclaim. Concerning the word of life, we proclaim to the eternal life. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Three times in four verses, we proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. Because our only access to the grace and truth of God in Jesus Christ is through the proclamation, the words, the written words, the preached words of the witnesses that Jesus appointed, commissioned, and empowered by the spirit of truth to bring his gospel to all generations. That's why we read the scriptures. That's why we have sermons. That's why we have Bible study groups. Uh, Not because we want to become masters of a book, but because this is the book of life that brings us to Jesus, the word of life, in person. And without this word of life, well, then there is no word of life to be known today. And so we proclaim it for our mutual encouragement. We proclaim it to those who don't yet believe. We proclaim it to the glory of him who has spoken. Well, number four, we've not yet reached our goal, but we're getting nearer with this one, with fellowship. We proclaim so that you may have fellowship with us, John says. That is, our fellowship is with the apostles. Or rather, our fellowship is with one another on the basis of the proclaimed word that Jesus entrusted to them. Let me illustrate that negatively. Uh, Over the last 150 years, give or take, uh, the Church of England has been on a journey to define itself by its margins. It's 
Everybody knows, we use the phrase colloquially, a broad church or a big tent. Uh, And in itself, that's not a bad thing. It is good to agree on core points of what the Christian faith says and to allow liberty to one another on things where the scriptures allow latitude and allow difference. We are one, but we are not all the same. So don't mishear me. It's not a bad thing to focus on what is important and then allow one another some liberty and latitude. But the trouble is, over the last 150 years, the Church of England has begun to define itself precisely by how big a tent it can become. If you want to become one of the masters or mistresses of the tent, you have to celebrate that. You have to see it as the defining characteristic above all other things. Everybody must be included. The trouble is, as that continues, it's an ever more impossible task. The wider the tent grows, the less people in the tent recognize one another as belonging together, and the cleverer and cleverer the tent masters and mistresses need to be at persuading us that we really are one family in spite of the increasing number of things that we disagree about. More and more effort needs to be put in, as it has been done especially over the last 50 years, into making sure that language is sufficiently ambiguous so that everybody thinks they've just articulated what they believe. But it also includes this person who believes something entirely different. And you see, in the end, it's not a sustainable model. It's not a biblical model. The church is not defined by her circumference. However welcoming and inclusive we should rightly be. The church is defined by the center, not by the circumference. I rejoice in the fact that we have open doors and a big fringe, and we welcome people at any stage of the journey. But it's a journey to what? A journey to what is in the center, fellowship with one another through our fellowship with the apostles, or rather with the Christ they uniquely heard and proclaimed. And what that means is that we have fellowship with the God who is himself a fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we take our eyes off the margins and bring them back to the center, or rather to Christ who is at the center, when we commit ourselves to submitting to Scripture, and being determined to find our unity here and not in the definitions of our recent history as to no one uh, must feel excluded, well, then we will regain a sense of the gospel's power and urgency and of the sweetness of fellowship with one another in the fellowship of the true and living God. And so finally we reach our goal, uh, joy. I wonder if you're expecting that. It's what happened, and I would encourage you to read the story in Luke 24 of that journey on the road to Emmaus. The disciples were doubting. Jesus revealed himself, and joy displaced doubt. And here is joy as well at the end of John's initial section. Joy for John and the divided, disoriented, and doubting church, he writes to, as they take their stand afresh together, gazing adoringly on the Jesus who entrusted his message to the witnesses, to the biblical authors. It'll be exactly the same for us. As we lift our eyes from the doubts uh, where we inevitably stare down and lifting up once again to the risen and reigning Lord who has spoken to us in his word. As we do that together after this disorienting year and as we seek to rebuild together in this place for the kingdom of God and his glory.
So we will discover the joyful and sweet fellowship that comes from knowing the living and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who has spoken, the God who speaks still, a God who unites us around himself, that we may be sent out in love and witness to the world around us that so needs to hear of the love of God for it. So friends, uh, would you read these words again and would you take them to heart? Here uh, we find uh, together, God has come to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, The witness was born faithfully so that as they proclaim, we hear the word of God. Uh, This uh, brings us into fellowship with each other in him and it fills our hearts as nothing else can with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that illustration on the road to Emmaus where doubt was displaced by joy. We pray that we would know the same in our own walk with you. We pray that whatever our doubts or disillusionment or discouragement or division or disorientation, that, Lord, as we look to you, as we look to you in your word, so we would find those promises that you've kept in Jesus, those commands that you will empower us to obey, sisters and brothers to love along the journey as we continue to that day when we shall see you face to face and we shall enjoy eternal sweet fellowship in the new heavens and the new earth. Until that day comes, please would you pick us up, lift our eyes and renew our faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.